0: Sean Fennessy.
1: I'm Amanda Davins,
0: And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about whatever your heart desires. Later in the show, I'll be speaking with directors Matthew Hamachek and Matthew Heineman about their new HBO documentary, Tiger, about the complicated life and career of golfer Tiger Woods. But first, Amanda and I will talk about Tiger, pretend it's a city, the Oscar race, and then we'll dig into the mailbag. It's all coming up. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cashback on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners, subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC, terms apply. This episode is supported by H&R Block. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with their no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season is better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com slash guarantees. Before we get into the mailbag, a couple things over the weekend hit in the world of movies. First thing I want to talk to you about is the thing I spoke to the directors of this documentary series about, which is Tiger. Tiger Woods. Now you know as a friend of mine and a podcast partner that I am an avid golfer and a fan of the sport golf. You are not a fan of the sport golf though your partner is and so golf is in your life but not truly of your life. What do you know about Tiger Woods and what were you expecting heading into this documentary?
1: Well, in addition to being one of the greatest golfers in history and in history and certainly one of the best athletes of the 21st century. Is that the correct century? Yes. Um, Which I do know about because athletes at that level become pop cultural figures. And I'm interested in pop culture, even if I'm not interested in my husband lecturing me about what type of iron Tiger Woods is using, which is like a personal hell that I live in on a daily basis. So I know a lot about him as like a pop culture athlete. And then obviously he has a pop cultural significance all of his own because of the events Uh, that he went through in the public eye uh, at the end of the last decade, and and really, honestly, for the last decade.
0: Yeah, and so I think that this series is an interesting gambit on HBO's part. It's clearly inspired slash based on a book that came out in 2018 by Jeff Benedict and Armin Katayan, and it's an attempt to make sense in real time of probably the most significant American athlete barring... LeBron James and Michael Jordan, I would say, of the last 25 years. Maybe Serena Williams is in that conversation. I think it's a very short list of people that for that Tiger is kind of hanging with in the last quarter century. And the film is tricky because they've only aired part one thus far. Part two airs next Sunday. And so I don't think you can necessarily spoil a film like this, but it depends on what kind of a viewer you are. If you're very engaged in the Tiger Woods story and his life, I don't think that this film necessarily will teach you a lot about the events of his life. There are not a lot of revelations. I think there are some emotional revelations. There are some, there's some, um, I guess, thematic framing that maybe you wouldn't necessarily put together if you weren't deeply entrenched in his story. The movie, especially the first half of the movie, takes great pains to portray this father and son story and to show Earl Woods, his father, as the kind of Dr Frankenstein uh, w- at, and making Tiger Woods into this kind of Frankenstein monster um for better and for worse and that he's incredibly powerful but there's like all kinds of emotional danger in his life. Um I do I it, one thing that struck me as I rewatched part 1 last night and I watched it with Eileen it's it's a, there's a lot of golf highlights in the first half and there's 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 not there's not a lot of scandal. There's not a lot of there is some psychology and there is a lot of sort of personal background about how tiger grew up and who he became, but because he has this sort of monochromatic monosyllabic experience in the world where we just, he never very rarely showed himself to us. Basically what you get is like 90 minutes of an extraordinary highlight reel dovetailing with this story of a father and a son and what they mean to each other. And I think if you're a casual observer, my, my instinct was is, is this going to work for people? Now the second half is, is a different can of worms and I don't want to spoil that for people, but did in the first half, did you find yourself having a hard time entering the story?
1: I did also watch this with my husband, the aforementioned golf maniac. And the, the soundtrack to watching this was every time a golf shot would be shown, Zach would just be like, Whoa, you know, (laughs) it was like a little gallery of one and he was doing it under his breath. And then I was kind of like, are you aware that this is happening? And he was like, sorry. And then he just kept doing it at like a lower volume. Um, I have to say when you show golf as just a highlight reel of Tiger Woods's most incredible shots, way more interesting to me personally than the stuff that you guys have on the, you know, TV on Sunday afternoon, which is so boring. My guy's pretty good at golf. Um so I enjoyed it in that sense. I I agree with you that maybe it's not that I had a hard time accessing it. Um and another interesting thing is that I I do think if you know even a little bit about Tiger Woods you kind of know about the Earl Woods character. Um and that is a pretty established part of his pop culture story. It's a like a big dad, like big character, looming dad figure. Which is sort of a familiar sports figure and showbiz figure for sure. And um greatness and then the fall. That's kind of what you know. And as as you mentioned there's a fall there. There is a part two. We won't spoil all of it. But if you are watching this documentary, you probably have some idea of what's going to happen in part two. And they even nod to it at the very end of part one, which is the, the very last shot it's of a very famous woman uh, just sidling up to the camera. I, that's that's great filmmaking. And I think when the documentary is leaning in to that, not even that side of the story, because it, it leans into all of the aspects of the story, but when it goes for that bit of flair and narrative tension is, is when it succeeds.
0: I agree. Part two, I can confirm is a little bit spicier, but I, part one, those shots are extraordinary. And it's it, at times it is closer to the endorphin hit of watching a YouTube highlight reel than yeah. it is necessarily of a true documentary format. But they, you know, the filmmakers did speak to a lot of people, who were once in Tiger's life, there is this sense that there are some people that are there to protect him, and there are some people that are there who have not spoken to Tiger in between 10 and 20 years and are airing dirty laundry and are eager to be a, a part of the narrative of his life. And when you have a figure that is that big, when you have someone that is that famous, that well-known, that exemplary at what it is that they do professionally, there's always going to be people like that. There's always going to be people who are like, I have a story to tell you.
1: Yeah, and. I became a bit more aware of that, of kind of the types of people who agreed to be in this documentary and why. And there are several reasons for that. Number one, just, you know, in your life, you got to be aware of who's going to be in a documentary about, you know, anything. You just question everyone's motivations, check your sources, (laughs) know where you're getting info always. That goes for all things in life. Okay. But like, these are people who were willing to sit down for a documentary that Tiger didn't authorize. So- they must, that must indicate something. I do also just watch these both as like an obsessive gossip studies person and also like, but sometimes I'm a journalist every once in a while, I put that hat on. And so you can feel them brushing up against the limitations of their access. Um, both in terms of uh, Tiger Woods does not sit for this documentary. And um, it's clearly not okayed by his camp. So that, that has like, <laughs> you know, logistical, practical ramifications in terms of what you actually see in the documentary and also a little bit how they're telling the story.
0: Yes. One, the the greatest day of my life will be the day when someone asks me to sit for a documentary about you. I think I will revel in the opportunity to tell the truth about who you really no. are. Um, that's going to no. be an exciting time for me. Two, you make, a, you make a great point, which is that obviously the Tiger Woods camp is not on board with this film. In fact, his agent last night issued a statement about uh, this project which I would say was uh, ungenerous and that's not surprising. I don't think that the film is is making an attempt to be salacious or tabloidy um in it in a um I don't know, in a way that is unfair in any way. I mean Tiger's story is kind of salacious and you'll see that in, in part 2 and I don't think that that's necessarily the motivation but there is some complexity and i think we're we have entered this moment as as fans of culture and sports as people who um idolize in a more significant way the, the notion of idolatry has come into like stand culture has come into the frame in a very serious way and the idea of protecting those who do things that you love is more significant than it's ever been And so this is interesting, especially as a contrast to The Last Dance, which was, of course, the last big super sports documentary of recent times. That wasn't authorized piece in which Michael Jordan and his compatriots were uh, on board as producers. And so they had a level of control in terms of the execution of the film. Um, Not total control, but you could sense that if there was anything that that they deemed out of bounds, that it would be hard to get that into the film and get it onto the air on ESPN. This film is different and it's a devil's bargain, right? It means you don't get to see Tiger Woods staring into the camera and addressing some of the craziest things that happened to him in his life for good and for ill. But it also means you get to talk about the things that you know he doesn't want to talk about. Um, you know, I think his his series of affairs and the 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 accident and the aftermath of his wife learning about his series of affairs all of that stuff is very well covered territory. The stuff that to me is most interesting in the second half has more to do with some of the reporting that Wright Thompson did a few years ago about Tiger's pursuit of greatness outside of golf, which is fascinating psychologically and physically in many ways. But this is a it's a very tricky time to be trying to tell stories like this. And I've been thinking about that a lot. It's not easy to put a spotlight on somebody who is beloved and flawed, and not get accused of trying to take advantage of their celebrity, and I'm trying to unpack that. I'm just trying to think about that
1: my husband, in addition to being a golf maniac, um, is also a journalist and has some experience in uh, of profiling famous people and kind of dealing with the mythology of celebrity, and he said something really insightful while we were talking about this. Um, so I'm going to credit him so he doesn't get mad at me. Um, but he pointed out that in addition to kind of having to walk that balance of not wanting to um, exploit the celebrity or kind of get too in the muck of the things. You also really can't, if if people are going to watch this because they love Tiger Woods and you can't go full out into the messiness, especially without authorization, um, without kind of cutting off one of the main access you have to the audience and to interest in this person, like I don't think that uh, there is an audience who would love to watch like three hours of the um the the National Enquirer aspect of this story, which that comes up in part two and that is a uh, quite memorable. And I'd love to talk about that guy at another point. But you know, there are people who are obviously interested in all scandals, but I think that's really separate from the people that just want to know about Tiger Woods and that kind of. Trying to negotiate that greatness and adulation, and also what's happening with him, is like the nature of the project itself, and also definitely the hardest part of it.
0: Yeah, there's a trickiness here. Like, there's a moment in the f- at near the end of part one where someone in Tiger's life insinuates that he cut his father out of his life near the end of his life because his father had a kind of messiness that Tiger didn't want to be close to. There's an insinuation that he had girlfriends, that he he struggled with alcohol. And because of this, Tiger, who in addition to being a an extraordinary golfer is becoming a humanitarian and a person who has an, a, a charity and who is a, a global brand and means a great deal of money to a series of sponsors, can't be seen as someone who is associated with that kind of behavior there's of course a deep and sad irony to that given everything that happens in the aftermath of it. But there's also no corroboration of that insinuation about tiger. You know, someone says it and when you're in a documentary format like this and not a 700 page book, you hear one person saying you think, okay, I, I guess that happened. And that's a real challenge in, in documentary filmmaking.
1: There are clues. I was really struck by a moment. I believe it's toward the end of part one. Um, it's the birth of Tiger Woods' first child, and then they show some lovely like, photographs of Tiger and his wife and their first child that, that were published. And they're talking about his press reticence. And someone is just like, he really hated all the attention. But they do the thing where they sh- they show the actual magazine article, and you can see some of the text. And the text that is visible in the documentary says the photos were taken five days after the birth of the child. And I just want to let everybody know that there is no way that a posed photo shoot is taken five days after the birth of a child without the participation and not just the participation but the planning of the, the people involved like that's not an accident they asked to do that now did they try to do that because you know there is this kind of received wisdom you you like give the official photographs and then people leave you alone and it, like no matter what you don't have to do it five days after the birth of a child unless you are crafting an image and like it, there are moments that you do have to look for in this documentary. But it is one of those things where like three hours is a really weird length. Um, Cause you get some of it. And if you're looking, you can stitch it together. But also as you s- say, it goes by very quickly. Like only one or two people see these things. And 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 if you're not looking, maybe maybe you don't catch it.
0: Yeah, to that point, I think we have become conditioned in part because of OJ Made in America, in part because of The Last Dance. To get this soup to nuts kind of story. And while The Last Dance is ostensibly about one season in the Chicago Bulls run during Michael Jordan's reign, it's really about that whole uh, series of teams over a number of years. And OJ Made in America is not just a story about um O.J. Simpson and Nicole Brown Simpson and 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 that that murder. It's about race in America across 60 years. It's about what fame and 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 in, a world of high, high profile athletics can do to a person um, and what it means to a person, what it means to America. It's a, ve- it's a very weighty and deep story. I, three hours, I agree, is, is, is a tricky length. Um, and I think rolling it out over this in this format, two standalone episodes over two weekends is, is complicated. It's not because there's a part of me as a fan of golf that just wishes the film spent more time on the Tiger Slam, just, just, just generally like want to see him be amazing for that one year period. When there was not a soul on earth that could even come close to him in terms of the sport, I mean, will we probably will never see that again. Someone operating at that level. Likewise, near the end of the first part of the film, the the I, I believe it's a Masters win. Um, maybe it's not a Masters win. I can't recall which major it is that he wins after his father's death when British he has Open. the British Open. Thank you. Um, when he has this extraordinary breakdown after he sinks that final putt on the course. I mean, I, I can't express to you how wild it was to be watching this when it was happening. Just like I can't express to you how wild it was to watch Tiger in 1998. I've never seen anything like that in my life where someone, 21-year-old person enters a sport, completely takes it over, and no one is even close to as good as him at this sport. So there's a part of me that like, that loves that stuff, that wants that stuff. I love sports. I love sports docs that are just about how people are great.
1: Yeah, I, I will say there's one throwaway quote and it's talking about how, like, all, Tiger Woods and especially his mom just did not respect Phil, Mil- Phil Mickelson. And someone says, like, Phil Mickelson is the greatest naturally gifted golfer in the world. And then they just, like, keep moving or whatever. And I asked Zach about this after the fact because, I, you know, you do want to know more about the sport as a way to understand the achievement. Also, not to step on our next segment, but they're um in the the Fran Levois, Martin Scorsese, Docu series that's out this weekend it's you know it uses a lot of uh, archival clips including and there's an interview between um Spike Lee and Friendly Woods and it's about whether Michael Jordan is an artist and how we understand sports and achievement and and as art or as like the sublime and I, you know I do think those Tiger Woods moments probably are the sublime and to be able to see them again as Friendly Woods kind of points out is really the only way that you can like That's the only record of them. So I, I can't believe I'm here being like, give me more golf. I've, I just 2021 is worse than 2020 already. (laughs) Like we're like 11 days in, I've betrayed myself, my principles, my personal life. I will drag
0: you into my vortex every time I can.
1: Extremely embarrassed and ashamed of myself. But just in order to understand the achievement, I mean, ultimately, as you said, you know, when talking about OJ Made in America and really, honestly, anything, it's never just about the thing itself. It's always about larger ideas. And this gets into some of the larger ideas. But I I guess if we have to talk about golf, let's talk about golf.
0: Yeah, there's a lot less golf in part two. And, you know, maybe we'll catch up on part two next week um, on a short segment, because I think. That is, frankly, more in your realm of expertise. And I think mm-hmm. I'm, I'm interested in your insight in the way that they portray that story and the way that sort of tabloid journalism and gossip culture drove a lot of his story um, over the course of the last 10 years because it totally reshaped it. And now we've kind of come out on the other side. Now, like, we're all kind of back to being like, Tiger is the greatest. And frankly, he is. Like, his Masters win in 2019. is one of the greatest sports events I've ever seen in my life. And so it's funny the way that Life moves in stages.
1: Yeah, it's also a really, really specific moment in tabloid culture and like a thing that never really happened again in the same way. Um, And there are a lot of reasons why that are pretty fascinating that the documentary somewhat unpacks and that I would like to unpack even more. But it's, it's interesting. Some some real characters in part two.
0: Truly. So we'll talk about that next week. You mentioned Pretended to City, the Martin Scorsese docu-series about Friendly Woods. I just wanted to talk to you about it briefly here. I don't know how much of it you got a chance to see after I, I nudged you on it. Um, I inhaled it. I watched all three and a half hours over a very short period of time on Friday. And um, as I am to do with all Martin Scorsese projects, I want to share a couple of caveats for people who maybe are not familiar with Friendly Woods. She mm-hmm. is, of course, a... 70-year-old writer living in New York, a woman who has published three books, two books of essays, humorous essays in the late 70s and early 80s, and one children's book in the 90s. That, aside from her magazine journalism, is the sum total of her writerly output, though she is frequently identified as a writer. She's also frequently identified as a humorist and an observationist of culture in America and specifically in New York, and this is a very much a, a docu-series about New York. Your mileage may vary on Fran Leibowitz. I, If you, if people are listening and they say, I watched this woman speak for five minutes and she is deeply not for me, I understand. I do not hold that against anybody. She is a very particular flavor. Having been raised in New York with a family that is from Brooklyn and Queens, Fran Leibowitz is a very familiar figure to me. And so I have a warm place in my heart for her. And I have a warm place in my heart, obviously, for New York and for Martin Scorsese. So this show, to me, Amanda, mm-hmm. was wonderful. Was it brilliantly made? Was it, was it uh, ethically and aesthetically perfect? No. It's, it's actually an interesting example, I think, of a lot of what we've been discussing, where it's like, you know, this is kind of overlong and a little messy and a little bit thematically incoherent. But like, I liked it.
1: But even aesthetically, it has real style and, you know, and it, and it does feel a little bit like it it is about hanging out with friendly boys, but it is like you're in Marty's mind for a little bit and the choices that he makes and it's, it's pretty loose, but I, I enjoyed that someone else putting this together, even in its kind of slack form would not have the same effect. I'm a huge believer of the, it's not for me school, uh, as you well know, because like Personal taste is personal taste. So I'd support everyone if it's not for you. I loved this. I It made me very homesick for New York as me well. Me too. Um, the city and the people. It made me miss two of my friends in particular, Sean, who you know, Katie and Becky, who I texted them to be like, please watch this. They haven't written me back. Guys, if you're listening, <laughs> I love you. Watch this show and text me back. Um, but, you know, it also it it makes you miss being around people it's about people being in rooms talking at each other and sharing completely trivial ridiculous opinions in a trivial way there's a frivolity to it that i took as escapism and um i felt real nostalgia and yearning for because we are not living in a time of frivolity at all major opposite uh, so it, uh, to me, it's a treat. I have a few episodes left. I, I would have watched them all in one sitting, but uh, my, my golf partner abandoned me.
0: I think the last episode is the best. So I look forward to talking to you about that. I think it's a good testament to actually what a streaming service can provide, which is the, sort of the beneficence to great artists on projects that they otherwise would not be able to make. I, I don't really know. Ten years ago, I have a hard time understanding how this show in this form could happen. There was a Martin Scorsese documentary about Fran Lebowitz in 2010 called Public Speaking that aired on HBO. That was a lot more formalist than this. This features um, interviews with Scorsese and Ted Griffin, who is a producer in a bar setting. It features conversations between Scorsese and Leibowitz on stage during an event. It features some of Leibowitz's speaking events. It features archival material of her in conversation with Toni Morrison. It also features... These four or five kind of talk show format back and forths in which famous people like Alec Baldwin, Spike Lee, Olivia Wilde interview Fran Lebowitz. It's really it features these odd segments in which he's walking through the city that are beautifully shot by Ellen Curris. It's really kind of a, a hodgepodge. It's an omnibus kind of a TV show. And. I, I don't think anybody else could have made it or could have gotten away with making it in this fashion, but I'm, I'm really glad it exists. The other thing I just wanted to say is, here's what it reminded me of. When we were getting ready to start The Ringer in 2015, my whole thing, in addition to feeling like there was, a, there was some white space that needed to be filled for the kind of content that we wanted to do, my general feeling about work over the last 10 years is I would like to support and show the world how clever, entertaining, smart and and useful my friends are that is i still believe that i was like there there should be a platform for these people that i think are great i always use chris ryan as the example obviously chris one of the greatest of all time for the last 20 years everybody who has been friends with chris is like why is chris ryan not incredibly famous chris mm-hmm. ryan now is achieving a a level of fame i don't want to get too too out of control here but more people <laughs> know who chris is than they did 10 years ago and i can feel in scorsese the same urges with Fran Lebowitz, where he's just like, my friend is so cool and funny. Everybody needs to know about my friend. Now, a lot of times when you do this, people find out, oh, actually, I don't like your friend and I wish you would stop throwing your friend in my face. But for me, I I thought this was like such a generous and and cool way of supporting someone he loves.
1: There's real affection in it and you can feel it and you can feel, like, maybe you don't share the affection for Fran Lebowitz, but I I do think you could feel the affection just like in the room as this is, being made and if not that's cool there's so much else on the internet for you there is just like there's so many other things and like you go watch those and I'll watch this and we can just like be nice to each other and not really have to fight about it
0: I think people will know within five minutes whether this show is for them or not so if it's for you that's wonderful I highly recommend it I mean let's do a quick Oscars update I Mm -hmm. think next week we will begin a formal return to the Oscars show format where we okay. will look at races. We will do uh stock up, stock down. Maybe Hark will make a return. We'll get some takes going. We're getting close to that moment when a, a lot of this stuff is happening. This feels like what November was last year right now, which is to say we've seen a lot. We haven't seen everything or the world hasn't seen everything. The narratives are calcifying. Soon they will be broken apart again. Mm -hmm. We're, I think we're about a month away, less than a month away from Golden Globe nominations. Um, More than a month.
1: No, I was just going to say, there's still, the the dates are moving around. And I do think we're going to have to, you, you, Sean Fantasy, just like need to emotionally accept that some more dates might move. It's just, it might happen. And I don't want you to have a cow when it does.
0: Yeah, I won't have a cow, but you're right. You're right. Uh, the Grammys moving off of the last week of January obviously indicates that a lot of stuff is up in the air. But some of the um, the critics' bodies are continuing to give awards out. The National Society of Film Critics gave their awards out over the weekend. I'll go through those very quickly. Nomadland, unsurprisingly named Best Picture. I think it's fairly clear that Nomadland is the frontrunner in, Oscar- in the Best Picture race right now. Uh, Best Director, Chloe Zhao, of course, for Nomadland. Best Actor, Delroy Lindo to Five Bloods. Best Actress, Frances McDormand for Nomadland. Best Supporting Actor, Paul Rocky for Sound of Metal. And Best Supporting Actress, Maria Bakalova for Borat's subsequent movie film. That certainly feels like a collection of people who could all win at the Oscars, which is interesting. I don't know what the correlation is historically with the National Society, but um, I wouldn't say that those are down-the-middle picks per se. And, you know, Swap a Maria Bakalova for an Amanda Seyfried, or you know, a Delroy Lindo for a Chadwick Boseman here and there, but it seems like a pretty close approximation of where things are going. What do you What do you think?
1: I certainly agree on Nomadland. I I did a brief historical look back, and the National Society of Film Critics tends to be like, what's the film version of left of center? Because um, that's kind of what they they they, they have picked some best picture winners um in recent memory parasite you've heard of it um moonlight and spotlight so but you know in 2018 they they, they picked the writer speaking of Chloe Zhao and wow. 2017 was lady bird uh, 2014 was goodbye to language 2013 was inside Llewyn davis 2012 was a so you can kind of like it, it's a little bit it's 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 when when the academy comes to like the cool kids is is uh when it happens, and is this a year when the Academy is going to come to the cool kids? I I still have no sense of it.
0: Well, we're going to find out because there are a few movies, and by a few, I mean 12, 13. There are 13 more movies that most people have not seen that I think are going to be meaningful to the Oscar conversation. I get asked this on Twitter all the time, but like, where can I see these movies? What is this movie? Um, I think for a what we're trying to do is a general interest movie podcast with a, that has a focus on award season for three to four months out of the year. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been more confusing than ever. It's really difficult to tell what's going on. So just in an, in an attempt to give people a little bit of a playbook for what the next two plus months look like in the movie world. Here's what's coming. On Friday on Amazon, you can watch One Night in Miami. This is Regina King's new film about One Night in 1964 that features essentially one long conversation among four friends, Muhammad Ali, Sam Cooke, Jim Brown, and Malcolm X. Interesting film. We'll talk about it a lot here on The Big Picture. Promising Young Woman. I had writer-director Emerald Fennell and Carey Mulligan on this show a couple of weeks ago. That interview went up. A lot of people were like, cool, how do I see this movie? The movie's been in theaters for a few weeks, but most people cannot go to movie theaters. You will be able to see it in your home, I believe this Friday, if not this Friday, early next week on VOD you'll be able to rent it. Other movies, The Little Things. I don't actually think this is going to compete for an Oscar, but I hope that it does. This is the Denzel Washington movie we (laughs) talked about last week. That'll be on HBO Max on January 29th. Supernova is a small drama, I think from Bleecker Street, starring Colin Firth and Stanley Tucci as two lovers. Nice movie. I watched it a couple of weeks ago. Um, I think the big noisy movie from this weekend was Malcolm and Marie which I got a chance to see, which is a new Netflix movie coming out in February, starring Zendaya and John David Washington. I think this was near the top of your list of most anticipated movies. Yeah, Um, This is definitely what 1917 was to the Oscar race last year, the kind of late entrant that's like, oh, okay, this is competing in every category and is going to be really noisy and has a a ready-made narrative, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Okay, just to be clear though, it's 1917 only in kind of Oscar narrative and not in like, you know, one take reply guy nightmare narrative.
0: Um, well, it, t- it turns out Malcolm and Marie is about World War I, which was a okay. twist when I, <laughs> when I got a look at it. I was surprised to find that. No, no, just insofar as, like, no one had really seen the movie until very late in the game. Yeah. And then as soon as everybody saw it, they were like, oh, this is kind of the movie that was missing from this conversation.
1: Mm-hmm. Whether
0: people like it or not, I think it will be very divisive. It's a movie that takes aim at uh, the movie industry and particularly journalists who cover the movie industry. And there is a long history of movies that do that, that um, rankle in the critical sphere. So I'll be curious to see what the reaction to it is. Uh, Undoubtedly amazing performances from, from Washington and Zendaya. You know, I I look forward to talking with you about it on the show. It's a, it's a very compelling movie and beautifully shot. And it has a lot of big ideas. Is it a little overwritten? It might be a little overwritten, but
2: Hmm.
0: we shall see. Uh, Then Judas and the black Messiah, February 12th. That's on HBO max. Very excited to talk about that movie as well. I think that, Malcolm and Marie and Judas and the Black Messiah are probably the two big. This kind of showed up late to the party and are going to change the constitution of the nominations, but we shall see there. Um,
1: We should just specify it showed up late to the critical party because you're about to list two movies that you and I saw a year ago and six months ago, respectively, that are major parts of the awards uh, circuit and that most people just have had no chance to see.
0: That's right. I I think I'm talking from a from a. I'm wearing my pundit's hat right now.
1: I know, but we're also trying to provide a service to all the people who are like, I just want to watch a movie. And guys, just so you know, it's as confusing for us as it is for you. Like, it, a- don't, You're not alone. We're all doing our best. And we're going we're gonna to try to help you find the movies.
0: A lot of it is unfolding in real time. Um, we learned la- late last year that Land, Robin Wright's, directorial debut in which she also stars is going to appear in theaters on February 12th. It's also going to be premiering at Sundance. We'll talk about Sundance a little later in this episode. Um, Minari, which has come up probably 20 times in the last year on this show, but that most people have still not seen, comes to theaters on February 12th. Likewise, Nomadland, which Oscar frontrunner comes to movie theaters on February 19th. Then there's The Mauritanian, which is Kevin McDonald's story of a, a man imprisoned in Guantanamo Bay and awaiting trial for many years uh, that has an absolutely incredible performance from Tahar Rahim that I would I would recommend to people. I think is the movie is okay. There are a couple of really good performances in it, and I think he has a chance to be nominated. Cherry hits movie theaters on February 26th and then on Apple TV Plus on March 12th. This is the Russo Brothers adaptation of the Nico Walker autofiction novel we will talk about that on this show the father a movie i saw almost a year ago starring anthony hopkins at sundance that everyone is a, quite sure will be a best actor nomination for anthony hopkins anybody who doesn't like anthony hopkins is probably blind and 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 just doesn't understand acting but um i i didn't love the father i feel like i'm on an island here with the father a lot of a lot of people seem to really like it. have you had a chance to see this one yet
1: I I have not because I missed it at Sundance a year ago, and so now. Also, I believe it's Sony Pictures Classic. Is that correct? It is. Yeah, they make it very hard to see movies. They were also the wife.
0: <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> oh no, that's brutal. Um, and then last but not least, this is the only. This is the last movie I have not seen. Um, it's called The United States versus Billy Holiday. This is Lee Daniels' new film, which was recently reportedly acquired by Hulu from Paramount and will be showing up maybe probably on February 26th on Hulu. Stars Andra Day as Billie Holiday. So, 13 movies that people have to catch up with to get invested in the Oscar race. Um, before we, we get into the- have time.
1: Again, well- the Oscars still aren't until the end of April. So, it's, it's okay. I think this is probably good pacing. Everyone pace yourselves.
0: Uh, I, that was going to be my question for you. Was, does this essentially leave enough time for regular people, people who are not obsessed with this stuff to get interested in watching the Oscars because there is some real concern that the Oscars are in a perilous state, uh, not just in the last year or five years or 10 years, but this ongoing cycle of award show viewership plummeting and also the the complexity of the movie industry shrinking and not to mention COVID-19 being a worldwide pandemic that has crippled this industry. Do you think that basically predominantly streaming films being at the center of an award show is going to draw people or is turn people away like what do you what do you think is going to be the reaction there
1: i don't think streaming is the issue i mean we did just do a, a whole segment about how to see movies because people can't most people cannot go to a movie theater in the united states right now and so they're just trying to figure out which streaming service to watch the movie on. Like, people are actually willing to watch things in their home, really, at unprecedented rates. So I, I kind of, just because of the pandemic, I think streaming versus not, it just is not really the issue. I think the types of movies will be interesting. I, I really thought Nomadland was an accomplishment. It, does it kind of have the same, it has a very different energy than parasite. So are people just going to be like memeing Nomadland in the way that they meme parasite? I mean, I hope not. I like just I know people can meme anything, but again, it's a different tone. And kind of, you know, you alluded to stan culture, but kind of that that energy and attachment to these movies I, it it depends a little bit on the field and how people decide to digest them. There aren't as many like noisy movies in kind of the literal noise sense as usual.
0: I, do, I wouldn't say that Malcolm and Marie is a best picture front runner, but I do think it's a front runner for memeable movie. There are okay. a lot of moments in this movie. There are a lot of, you know, strands of dialogue. There are a it's lot like of the Mary shots. story. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yes. What so a great meme.
0: That was, yeah, that was a great yeah. meme.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, I mean, that meme is like this podcast in a lot of ways. It's just like <laughs> you, you saying something unforgivable and me punching a wall. Um, so, yeah, I guess, I mean, we'll see. We'll see. I'm I'm ready to start talking about it in a real way. I basically just started talking about it in a real way on this podcast. So I, I, I'm ready for it to be Oscar time. And I, I don't think, we're, we're probably not going to devote as much time to it as we normally do, though. I, I just don't think there is as much interest in it. And I don't think that there is... There are as many compelling narratives because the narratives are hard to tell uh, because you don't know how many people have seen this stuff.
1: Right. And the way that the campaigns are going to be run is extremely different. Um, I've been checking up on the Instagram of Josh O'Connor, who plays Prince Charles in the Crown, just, you know, normal Instagram stuff. And he has been participating in a lot of and like really um, being the mediator for a lot of awards Q&As, which are just like a Zoom call. And I'll watch this guy do almost anything, but I have not been watching a lot of Zoom calls for panels for people to vote for like SAG awards or BAFTAs or whatever. So I think that'll be really interesting of even how within the guild people try to like get the word out and get people behind their movies. It's going to be very different.
0: It is going to be very different. Speaking of different, let's go to some different kinds of questions in the mailbag. Okay. Wags, you want to read us some of these questions? Yes, I'm here.
3: I'm, I'm happy to be back. Last week, I was um, completing the Francisco Lindor trade, so you're welcome.
0: Thank you for all your work,
3: Bobby. We appreciate you in Metsland. Took a week off the big picture to um, make every Mets fan's life amazing. Uh, the first question comes from Ross. It is, if you could correct one Oscar win in history, in other words, provide an Oscar to a nominee that actually lost instead of the winner, what would
0: it be and why? I think there are too many, too many potentially good responses to this question.
1: I made a list of all like the really obvious ones, kind of just like the generally understood. If you're a big picture listener, then you agree that this is how Oscar history should have gone. Can I read them to you? Please do. They're all in the best picture category. And I definitely, these are the most obvious. I think we're all agreed that more often than not, the Academy is wrong. Okay. That's like the animating force of this podcast. Okay. But the off the top of my head, most obvious ones obviously should have been social network over King's Speech. That's just... Disgrace. The other, just like ultimate disgrace. Uh, Do the Right Thing, which was not nominated over Driving Miss Daisy. Goodfellas over Dances with Wolves. Pulp Fiction over Forrest Gump. Brokeback Mountain over Crash. I'm going to put Moneyball over the artist here. That's not nice. traditionally, you know, Moneyball isn't normally attached to it, but I'm attaching it today. I support you. Thank you. Um, three options over The Shape of Water. Get Out, Lady Bird, or Phantom Thread. Take your pick. <laughs> Uh, and then more recently, Roma or star is born over green book. So there you go. I would like a recent history of obvious ones, but I picked a personal one as well.
0: I think those are all great picks. I'll add one more historical entrant into the best picture race, which I think could be considered a bit controversial mm-hmm. in 1977, Rocky won best picture. It mm-hmm. won over all the president's men network which has been at times in my life my favorite movie ever and taxi driver mm-hmm. um i love rocky i'm i'm not i'm 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 alive i have blood flowing <laughs> through my body uh i i feel so i love rocky it's an impossible to not love rocky and right. rocky is not a better film than any of the three films i just named in my opinion which
1: do you pick though i agree with you but which do you pick well I think
0: all the president's men oddly has be- become the movie that is the most um, beloved, valorized, praised over that time. Um, in part because of its, you know, its un- its unexpiring nature, the fact mm-hmm. that we can kind of consistently look back. And part of that is due to the most recent presidential administration and misdeeds done during that time. Mm-hmm. Um, ne- Network is is my favorite of those three. I would have preferred Network. I think Network was like the most fascinating and daring movie in the bunch and taxi driver is pretty pretty daring but network is an extravagant experiment and a collision of people at the absolute height of their powers all working together so that would have been my pick
1: i agree with that i think network is like the greatest and all the President's men is my favorite and taxi driver is probably like the most daring if you anyway i i agree with that I'm I'm, gonna, I'm going for easy listening over here and I would have picked Working Girl over Rain Man. Justice
0: for Working Girl. So funny you bring that up. I I just rewatched Rain Man the other day. It's pretty good. It's It's, uh, not, it's definitely good. It's It's I'm, weird to think of cool. it as like the biggest movie of the year. That movie made like 300 million dollars and that was a totally different time in movies when Rain Man could be the number one box office hit. Um it's it's not better than Working Girl though, I agree. Thank you. Um The one other response, I think we could have just changed the arc of history if we had given Pacino best actor for Godfather 2 in 1975 instead of Art Carney for Harry and Tonto. That, I think, could have changed the tradition of waiting 20 years too late to give great actors their Oscars when they deserved it. And we continue on this path. There's, There's going to be a movement for Glenn Close to win an Oscar for Hillbilly Elegy. We need this to stop. We need to reward the actors in their time for their great performances. That's This is very important to me. I don't know why it's important, but it is
1: important. I agree with you with respect to Oscar history. How would it have changed Al Pacino history? And would it have been... For the better or for the worse. Because would Chris would Chris
3: still be yelling Al Pacino impressions on every exactly. single podcast that's that he's sort of on. the
1: thing? It's like do you have like the absurd rest of Al Pacino's career, the major highs and like the ridiculous lows without this, you know, thing hanging over him.
0: Oh, wow, what an interesting question. I really don't know how he would have responded to that. I mean, he had a wild 1980s. It seemed like a lot of personal turmoil and he kind of vanished for a few years there. So if he had won, would it have made him move away from movies and, and lean into the theater, which is what what he really loves? Would it have made him more experimental in the kinds of films he made? Would it have made him more interested in just making money the way he has seemed to have been for the last 20 years? I don't know. I, I honestly don't know. I just know that his performance in The Godfather Part Two is arguably the greatest performance in the history of movies. And so it, you'd think that the man should have won a statuette for it. Nevertheless, he did not. Uh, what's our next question, Bobby?
3: Next question comes from Dustin. What is the best half movie? Some movies crackle at the start and fizzle out, some movies slog through a beginning and come to an explosive finish. What is the best 50% of a movie?
0: This is a really tough one. You have an answer?
3: This
1: is this is such a good question. And we added it in, added it in at the last minute. And there's something like on the tip of my tongue. Like I know there's a movie that's just like the first hour. I can like I can hear Zach saying it, but I can't think of what it is right now. Do you have an answer? Maybe it'll jog my memory.
0: Yeah, and some people, some purists will will shout me down on this, but uh, Full Metal Jacket is probably the most often cited version of this, where the first hour, which captures um, boot camp in full, and the the sort of the drill sergeant Arlie Ermi character just grinding these characters to dust and kind of like psychologically breaking them down before they um, head out to Vietnam. Um, is I is frequently cited as like one of the great first halves of a movie, and the second half of the film is very good, and is this, I mean, it's it's brilliant. It's a Kubrick movie, and and it, it does have um a lot of the hallmarks of his best work, and obviously shooting war films is very difficult. But that first hour is funny, terrifying, emotionally wrenching. It, it kind of has everything that you want, and. So that's probably my pick. I'm sure people will be in my mentions like, how dare you degrade the second half of Full Metal Jacket? But that's that's the answer I'm going with.
1: This isn't what I'm trying to think of and can't remember. When I think of it, I'll let everybody know. But I, as A Star is Born, the most recent A Star is Born, I think definitely falls in this category. I'm very affected by the end of A Star is Born, but really everything leading up to the first time she sings Shallow on stage, which is like... Think an hour, maybe a little bit less. I mean, that's just absolute dynamite.
0: Remember when Dave Chappelle just showed up in a Star Is Born? That was weird. <laughs> it wasn't bad. It was just weird. It was like, what yeah. is that? What is happening? Who is this guy? What? <laughs> why is he in Bradley
1: the Cooper's like in a bush for half the scene anyway. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Very strange. Uh, okay, Bobby, what's next?
3: We've been talking a lot about a Star Is Born. We got the, the wife. We got marriage stories. This, this nostalgia is warming Throwback my heart. Pod. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Um, this next question comes from Chauncey. What directors do you fear will be lost to younger generations due to the limited number of classic films on streaming services?
0: My first thought was Preston Sturgis, who's one of my favorite writer directors and is widely considered one of the, the cleverest screenwriters of all time. And he, he, there does not seem to be a, an active hive for Sturgis. And I don't really know why that is. I think he actually fits quite well into the moment. You know, he has a kind of absurdist, acidic, high concept but modest execution kind of humorous romantic drama comedy style you know obviously like the Nora Efrons of the world were really influenced by Sturgis movies um as were like James Brooks and you know the people like Albert Brooks like these people who are kind of writer first but know how to make great movie you know even if they're not like these visual dynamos and you know there are a, there are a couple of Sturgis movies that are all- time classics that people still talk about on a regular basis that you know are in the criterion collection or whatever. Obviously probably Sullivan's travels foremost among them, uh, maybe the Lady Eve right behind that. But I think almost every movie he made is is like a four four star, if not five star movie, and that's pretty rare. And there are a few of them that are very difficult to see. And there's no kind of like restoration project going on around them as far as I know. And he's somebody who I think is kind of slipping through the cracks a little bit in the way that like Hitchcock and John Ford and Akira Kurosawa, like they're not slipping through the cracks. They are memorial. Ingrid Bergman, there was a big Fellini box set last year. Like If you think about those, the, the iconography that has been built around those filmmakers, um, it doesn't feel like Sturgis has that right now. What, what is there one for you?
1: I mean, I, if you're talking about a lady... Eve hive. It's like me here. I'm willing to be interviewed or whatever. But you know, this is interesting because it the the question is predicated on like access via streaming. Um, and I know y- you are a big worrier <laughs> about like streaming archives and are creating your own. And and I super get that. But I I don't really know if it's access that is the number one problem. Even your answer was kind of about like, you know, which filmmakers do film historians take seriously and, and which do not. Um, and, you know, that becomes a larger question about, like, canons and, 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 and what's in vogue and generationally um, what people are interested in classic film-wise. I mean, the other thing is that we just went through a whole uh, episode where people refused to watch Citizen Kane on streaming. So it's not necessarily the access via streaming or not that is the issue. It's people being like, do I have to watch one of five, uh, under, you know, classic films of all time in order to understand this other excellent film. So I I worry about everyone in that sense.
0: Yeah, I think I was responding not so much to is this movie available on streaming? Because yeah. most movies are available on VOD, not everything, but most movies you can find on Amazon or, or iTunes. It's more like, is there a carousel on HBO Max that says the Preston Sturgis collection? And does that mean anything to anyone? I just don't think it does um, in a way that like Casablanca still means something to people in the in the imagination of the American moviegoer. Like, Casablanca is still historical. Y- to you
1: and me, I think it doesn't. Like I would be really interested, you know, people under 30. Have you seen Casablanca? Like Wags. would you turn it on? Wags, have you seen it?
3: I think I watched it once in college, but it's not important to me. Sorry. Oh my God.
1: <laughs> Jesus Christ. Bobby, you should have lied to me. I'm like... <sighs> Fuck, Bobby. Should
3: I watch it this should I watch it like tonight? Yes, it's tell you? so
1: good. Yes.
3: Zero okay. percent oh chance. Oh my god. Zero
0: percent like chance.
3: I, I, I think that that is all true. It's just there's so many things happening like, all I the time, and, and I'm being like, inundated Bobby, with so much stuff all the time that everybody is mad at me about. Bobby, and I'm just like, it, it, I just want to chill and watch Francisco Lindor's press conference in bed with a cup of coffee. Like, that's it. <laughs>
1: I mean, this I is, is pretty much it. I, I mean, I, I relate to it, too. I do. But Bobby, just like watch Casablanca. And then when they start singing the Marseillaise, just text me like you were right. That's okay. all you got to do.
3: I will. I mean, I'm sure you are right. I, I absolutely believe that. And everybody's going to be mad in my mentions now, too, Sean.
1: No, it's it's OK. I Like, we did put you on the spot. And I, I, I don't think that that is a um, particularly unique viewpoint.
0: I'm more interested in Bobby watching like the Palm Beach story or Hail the Conquering <laughs> Hero or Unfaithfully Yours. You know, watch those movies. Those give me a new project too. where you
3: guys just suggest movies to me and I just have no idea what's coming. Like, I, I, I am like contractually obligated not to look it up ahead of time.
0: I'm glad you b- brought this up. I have been thinking about this, Amanda. Tell me if you're interested in participating mm-hmm. in this, but maybe just every episode just doing a, 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 a picks section, just one movie each. Where we're both just like, watch this movie. It doesn't matter what year it is. Doesn't matter who made it. Doesn't matter what streaming service it's on. We'll just be like, I have 90 seconds clear out. Here's why you need to watch this. Do you think people would care about that?
1: We can try. Okay. I do feel like we do that for like, 800 movies on every episode. Like, that's I know, kind of what this... Ep- I know, I mean... And, you said it for like
3: 14 Preston Sturgis movies like six I know, And that <laughs> is
1: true. And it's, it's also, we did a whole speech about like trying to make things more accessible and like help people, you know, practical, whatever. So we can like... Pra- Here's my recommendation. Let's start it right now. Watch Casablanca. If you haven't seen <laughs> Casablanca, check it out. We'll meet back here next week and we'll talk about how great it is.
0: Are we doing Casablanca? Are we sure it's good? Is that was I, that? What's
1: I'm not... I I will, like, just lie down on the floor and do, like, a child's tantrum if we have to do that. I'm not going to partake so, in so that. So
0: it'll just be another episode of this podcast is what you're saying. <laughs> yeah,
1: okay. I Absolutely haven't actually ever physically, like, laid down on the podcast because it wouldn't really translate in audio. But if I can figure out how to do that, I will.
0: What's the next question, Bobby? This comes from
3: Connor. Who is your favorite pre-1960
0: movie star? I wrote down a few names because it's hard for me to pick. Um... I've never not liked watching Jimmy Stewart in a movie. I, even if I don't love the movie, I love to watch Jimmy Stewart do Jimmy Stewart. He is the definition of transcending persona, where you think you know who he's going to be in every movie, and if he is himself, you're delighted. And if he changes, if he's more villainous, if he is more cynical, if he isn't that aw shucks kind of character that we know, it's also riveting. So Jimmy Stewart is usually number one with a bullet for me, but I love Burt Lancaster. I love like how daring Burt Lancaster was as an actor and the very strange films that he pursued and his willingness to be hated as a character in movies, especially Sweet Smell of Success, but many of his movies. And then Chris and I did a whole episode on Toshiro Mifune last year, and I just re-watched Sanjuro, which is the second movie after Yojimbo about the Sanjuro character, and he is just a lightning bolt. I mean, he is the most fun person to watch on screen, so I love him. And then for actresses, I quickly wrote down Ingrid Bergman. Speaking of uh, Casablanca, and there are no there are no bad Ingrid Bergman performances. And my wife and I have a bit of a a, a fetish for Joan Fontaine, so pretty much any Cho- Joan Fontaine movie we like to watch. Um, so that's more than one. That's five people. What do you got?
1: I have two. I Catherine Hepburn is. Uh, <sighs> it it it's hard for me to put into words, but obviously you know a. Uh, uh, take no bullshit, fast talking, uh, fashion icon, uh, would love to be all of those things. Um, and the other is, is Cary Grant and Bobby, can I read the next question just sure. because yeah. the next question is in honor of the Cary Grant collection on criterion channel, which is about all of Cary Grant's comedies. What is my favorite Cary Grant performance? Um, so speaking of Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant, I rewatched bring it up baby last week because it's on criterion That is it's just dynamite. And, you know, I'm obviously interested in those specifically the the Howard Hawks screwball comedies because just of the fast talking and the influence that they have on um, every single romantic comedy that is made. And also, you know, Aaron Sorkin and and all of the other types of dialogue heavy films that I enjoy. But there is a it's probably not my favorite Cary Grant performance. It might be is it my favorite? It's not my favorite of either of their performances, but like what they can do together and the chemistry between them is, um, I'm very partial to it. It's hard for me to, um, pick another Cary Grant. Per- I-, I like North by Northwest. I really love to catch a thief, but there's something about, and it's kind of the opposite of Jimmy Stewart. He just shows up. He's at ease. Um, he can wear clothes like Catherine and We can see some similarities. Um, there's a real charm and, um, I I do think it's my understanding of old Hollywood, like glamor and comfort that I find completely transporting. And it's not like homework watching them. It's just like, oh, imagine if we could all be like that. Wouldn't that be fun? And I think that's why I watch classic films, Bobby, not because, you know, like at at some point it's just transporting. So those are my two favorites. And that whole collection on Criterion is really great.
0: There are so many to recommend. It's really hard to, yeah. it's really hard to pick just one. I think there's also some sliding doors for him. I mean, he if if Cary Grant wanted to be an action star, he probably could have been. He's a great action star in Gunk and In and and if he didn't, he, instead he kind of continues. You know, he does Only Angels Have Wings and he does some sort of wartime films. But for right. the most part, he's best known for that either that kind of smooth man in peril in North by Northwest or that, that screwball comedy that you're talking about. I think His Girl Friday is probably my pure favorite it, of his performances. Well. Yeah. Um, but Bringing Up Baby, The Awful Truth. Uh, I feel like a lot of people have been watching Holiday because that had been out of circulation and is now on the Criterion Collection that the person who asked us this question is talking about. I, it, it, it's funny. We were talking about Pretend It's a City. Funny moment in Pretend It's a City. So one of the things that the show is, will jump out to people when they watch it, and that is pretty easy to, to mock, and I have seen some people mocking it, is that Martin Scorsese's role on the show, his physical role, is largely just to laugh at the things that Fran Lebowitz says. And he's frequently off camera, though you can kind of see the you know, bit of his shoulder, and the camera sits over his shoulder, and it's looking at Fran, and she says something, shares some witticism, and he laughs. There's one moment, really, where he talks for more than 20 seconds at a time. And they're kind of setting up to shoot for the day. And you can see that they're just kind of having one of those conversations that you have before you start recording, much like the three of us did before we started recording this podcast. And Friendly Wood says, you know, I watched uh, Penny Arcade the other night, uh, the, the Cary Grant movie. And Scorsese goes into Scorsese mode. And he says, Penny Serenade, you mean. Penny Serenade. Yes, of course. George Stevens, and then he starts talking about Mm -hmm. Cary Grant. And he says something that I have to fact check, which is that he says at that moment in his career in Penny Serenade, he was trying to break out of the Cary Grant persona and do films that were not just that traditional holiday, bringing up baby, his girl Friday, screwball comedy thing. And he says he made a movie in 1945 called None But the Lonely Heart that was his sole Academy Award nomination for Best Actor which is not true Martin Scorsese who knows more who has forgotten more about movies than I'll ever know uh, did not note that he actually was also nominated for Penny Serenade Cary Grant has two Academy Award nominations in his career for two movies that very few people have seen that are our age None But *The Lonely Heart and Penny Serenade those are not in the Hall of Fame if we were going to list the top 10 Cary Grant movies I don't think either of those would make it and those are the two films he was nominated for and he never won an Oscar so once again what what are the Oscars doing? Why are we not so... Support- and, and I'm sorry to fact check Martin Scorsese, but
1: I had to do it. I was... I just... I just want to say, very un-Cary Grant energy, um, but just like an amazing thing that you just did to you know, interrupt just a, an appreciation of a very debonair, handsome movie star to be like, let me fact check Martin Scorsese on this weird Netflix thing. It just... That is what happened.
0: I have a poisoned brain and when mm-hmm. a person says a fact about a movie that I know to be not correct, even if it is perhaps the greatest living filmmaker, I just have to note that.
1: Okay, but it was a fact about the Academy Awards, which don't matter, even though we spend most of our waking hours talking about them.
0: Good point.
3: Okay.
0: Uh, what's what's next, Bobby?
3: Next question comes from uh, Broom Kid, which is probably what I'm going to change my Twitter name to when the Mets sweep the Yankees in the World Series this year. <laughs> <laughs> if you could interview any dead director for a couple hours who would it be easy Kubrick
1: mine's Nora Ephron
3: okay on brand I don't even think we need to explore and explain that yeah a real statement of purpose there uh Hannah asks what are your spouse's favorite movies and when can we get a spouse's episode of the big pick
0: let's do the second part first um my wife says, Eileen, mm-hmm. who is a very mm-hmm. special person, that she will never appear on this podcast and that she has no intention of appearing on this podcast. And so this this question is null and void.
1: I, Eileen is the holdout. Eileen is also the person that you absolutely just want to get on this podcast because wild stuff will start <laughs> happening. Eileen is like a Eileen is a lovely, respectful, and like not obnoxious person, and then suddenly, when the floor is hers, just amazing <laughs> magical sentences appear. So we got to keep working. i'm I'll work on it as well. Um, but it is Eileen who is holding out her favorite
0: movie, though, I tell you what I did not check in with her on this beforehand, and okay. so uh, this will be a real test on if she's listening to the show. But at times, it has definitely been dial in for murder, which I think I even mentioned when we did the Hitchcock episode. Um, And if not dial in for murder, certainly the thin man um, has been there in the past. And also we just had a very, very, very long conversation about a Muppet Christmas Carol recently (laughs) after, after watching it. Um, And she has like an unhealthy addiction to a Muppet Christmas Carol. So that's probably a solid top three for her.
1: What was the, what's heat miser and snow miser?
0: Um, that's different. That that's a bass Rankin animated okay. stop motion animation. Uh, I guess it's a movie, um, that, that airs just, every Christmas.
1: It was not a thing that I had ever seen. And, and then just like at one night at dinner, Eileen just started yelling like heat miser at me. And I was just like, I don't know what's happening. And it wasn't like there was any conceptual information. She just kept being like heat miser, heat miser. And then we did actually watch it and it was pretty cute. Um, So I did ask Zach what his favorite movie was. And then things got very interesting in my home. (laughs) So so I'll just put in some context. Um, Well, two things. The first being that, and I've mentioned this before, that Zach, you know, has some um, objections about his recurring portrayal on this podcast, um, which at this point is just like me slandering him on a twice-weekly basis. And then I come into the room and I'm just like, hey, just so you know, I said this about you again. And he's just like, damn it! Um,
3: you keep saying so, that that's going to stop, by the way, too. And like the more that you say that it's going to stop, the more it happens.
1: Right. Bobby, thank you so much for pointing that out. And he <laughs> should know my psychology. But also because of that, this morning, I, I decided to ask him because I know that he has some complaints about his like public big picture image. So um, I was upstairs. So I like, just like texted him from upstairs at eight in the morning being like, hey, what's your favorite movie? Which is like a normal Monday morning text message to get from your wife who's in the same house. And at first he just wrote back and was like, what's wrong with you? And so then I explained, and I was like, I'll probably just do some disrespectful guessing anyway, but if you'd like to have your answer on the record, you should feel free to let me know what your favorite movie is. And then he just refused to answer. was like, please tell your listeners that I'm a private citizen and also, you know, there's and then just went on, and then I made him, and he's like, also, you should know this. I asked him what my favorite movie was. He sent a list of answers that were completely wrong, and then we got into a fight, so in conclusion, I don't totally know what his favorite movie is um, I like Sean, what would you say?
0: uh, boy,
1: I don't he know. Really- He doesn't re-watch movies like we do. Um, You know, like if Goodfellas is on, he'll put it on. I think he has kind of your 70s and 80s, like, boy film tastes.
0: Well, Goodfellas was released in 1990, so how dare you Well, I know. Okay, but you know what I mean. Um, uh, Zach and I have watched Goodfellas together in his parents' home. I remember it very vividly. Okay. Also, they
1: don't really watch a lot of movies, so you really have to try to watch it there was some that, sort
0: of back household. room situation you know like yeah, yeah, when you come yeah into my house yeah there's a gigantic fucking television right in the first room you walk into it's like look here's the deal in this house we watch stuff this is very important there are a lot of books you know there's some knickknacks some doodads some furniture but it's like we're watching stuff we're either watching movies or we're watching sports in my house hence me working at the ringer and in in Zach's parents house I don't want to give away too much. That's not the case. You walk in beautiful no, home, but it's you not have to they're, they're not foregrounding the DVD collection. Yes.
1: No, there isn't a DVD collection. Like you're allowed to watch sports I think when it's like the Eagles or the Sixers. And I don't I've watched one complete movie with Zach's parents. It was The Imitation Game. And it was, like, at the end, <laughs> like, that's it. That's the, oh, I love Zach's parents so much. They're so, they're so lovely. And they're just not into watching movies. And I remember it was, like, at the end of Thanksgiving, and we were all talked out. And we finally got to watch, like, The Imitation Game. And I think—and Zach's dad was really into it. And Zach's mom didn't like it very much and was like, can we go do something else now? Um, so he doesn't watch a lot of movies, I guess. What I don't know. We watched a lot of old movies together, especially, like, when we were dating. Like, I vividly remember watching the Philadelphia story together pretty early, and that was cute. I also remember a failed project to try to watch Reds together, and we just never made it to the end. Um, so I've never seen the end of Reds. Don't tell me what happens. Um, recently when we... John Reed we, dies, I'm very sorry yeah, okay. to say. Uh, Thanks. Uh, recently when we were doing the George Clooney Hall of Fame, I invited him to watch Michael Clayton with me and he was like, I don't need to rewatch it with you. I can just reenact it for you. And then I was like, okay, go. And so he started to try to reenact Michael Clayton for me. And it wasn't word perfect, but he did yell, I am Shiva, the God of death, like 14 times. So I guess Michael Clayton would be up there. Um, And that's it. That's how my marriage is going. Sounds wonderful. Here's the other thing. It's like, I probably do know what his favorite films are, but once he starts talking about things I'm not interested in and I just stop listening. So that's, and I tried to do some journalism to round out that knowledge this morning and I was rebuffed.
0: It's just incredibly mean what you just said.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I asked him.
0: Um,
3: he
1: was like, next, your favorite movie is Pretty Woman. I was like, when have I ever talked to you about Pretty Woman in my entire life? That's not even my top 50 rom-coms. Like, what are we doing here?
0: This podcast is not a surrogate for your disagreements with your spouse. Okay. I have to just, I have to mark that territory here. You guys, you tried to relitigate a fight I am not a part of, nor is Bobby.
1: It was part of the question.
0: This is the opposite of Save It For The Pod. This is... <laughs> This is save it for the house. Save it for
3: home. I mean, like, we've been podcasting from home for so long that how different is it really? That's a good point. That's fair. Uh, The next question, thankfully, comes from Cal. While some releases have enticed me to pay for VOD, most of the conversation around movies this year seems to have been streamer flicks. Were there hit VOD releases this year, or is this just an indicator that streaming is the future and the future of monoculture programming?
0: I mean, a definitive yes to indicator that streaming is the future and the future of monoculture programming insofar as it exists. Uh, I don't, I genuinely don't know if there were VOD hit releases this year. There's no system that, that tracks it significantly. I think it's probably safe to assume that Trolls World Tour and Tenet and The Crudes 2 and a handful of other movies that if you just pull up, you know, iTunes or Amazon Prime right now you'll see are dominating the charts but I, I I I candidly don't know and I don't know how we would know
1: I've been thinking a lot about this really since the whole Wonder Woman 1984 meltdown which is that it, they all got to just start releasing this stuff I, whatever they think they're hiding because the business is not what it was box office wise it's just from a conversation's perspective If we don't know, then we're going to look at Twitter. And that is not the indication that any of these people want for any of the success of like their projects. They need to, you got to bite the bullet and go through a couple of years of like the VOD numbers not being box office numbers until you can get to a new normal where you have some control over the conversation or else you have absolutely no control.
0: Uh, I agree. I think that's right. What's next?
3: Okay, there are a lot of really good questions left, but we're running short on time here, So let's do two more, three more. Great. Um, this next one comes from David. If you could spend the day on one movie set in history, what would it be taking into account cast location and era?
0: Hmm. You know what you want here? Yeah, I have two. Is Working Girl one of them?
1: No, but thank you. Um, no, one is To Catch a Thief because French Riviera, Cary Grant. It's when Grace Kelly was being courted by Prince Rainier, and I would also like to kind of witness that from a you know gossip perspective, but mostly I'd just like to be on the Mediterranean with, with Cary Grant. Um, and then the other is obviously Ocean's Eleven.
0: Oh, yeah, that sounds fun. That does yeah. sound fun. <laughs> the um, new
1: version, obviously, with my friend Steven Soderbergh. I didn't know how to answer this,
0: because I don't... Do I want to witness greatness? Do I want to witness the construction Um, of something magical? Do I want to just have fun? You know, do I I want to just be with cool people?
1: You would answer in terms of greatness and being there for history, and I would answer in terms of like shallowness and hanging out on the beach with Steven Soderbergh.
0: So I've already given a Kubrick centric, I've given two Kubrick centric responses in this mailbag, which is perhaps a bit revealing, but. I do think Eyes Wide Shut would have been an interesting one to be on the set for.
1: Yeah. I think that's a I good think, answer. And
0: that that would be a long journey. That was a very long shoot, but there is a lot untold about what happened there. And obviously you've got one of the greatest filmmakers of all time, two of our favorite stars in the midst of a marriage, and a film about the potential dissolution of a marriage, um, a psychological portrait. Also, just some of the wildest scenes ever shot in the history of movies occur in that film. So that would be uh, interesting to observe. Um, so I guess I'll go eyes wide shut. You do, let's, do, let's just do a Sundance question and then wrap up with something at the end.
3: Yeah, okay. it's just a lot of people wanted to know what to watch at Sundance.
0: So I, we don't know. Um, this is obviously the first time Sundance is doing what so many festivals did last year, which is it's going virtual. So Amanda and I are participating. We're going to try to watch as many movies as we can. We are registered and ready to go. I think January 28th is when it kicks off. And it's basically going to be four days of largely nonstop viewing. And the viewing is organized around kind of three-hour blocks. And so this is really tricky. This is really tough. Now, one of the cool things about it is, is that um, many people out in the world can just buy tickets in a way that they could not before. There 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 are still some available tickets, I think, for some of the screenings. I think a lot of stuff sold out last week. But people were asking us for this because they were like, where do I spend my money? How do I check out these films? Truthfully, I don't know. On the one hand, the Sundance lineup this year is slimmed down quite a bit from what it usually is. There are a couple of reasons for that. Obviously, it's harder to manage a virtual festival. One, two, I think films that already have a distributor don't really have a huge reason to participate in Sundance this year. They may not see this festival as a way to necessarily build up the brand and the buzz of their movies in the way that they did if this was in person. But also, um, there is still a, an urge to show films that don't have a distributor and to get it in front of people and to build a conversation around it. So, you know, whereas historically there are hundreds of movies at Sundance this year, there's like in the fifty to hundred range. I'll point out a couple that I'm excited about. Um, that I but, I, but I think it's fairly unpredictable. You, you want you want to just go back and forth one and one, Amanda? Yeah. So the first one that I'm I'm obviously most excited about is On the Count of Three, which is Drodd Carmichael's directorial debut, one of my favorite stand-up comics, and someone who I think is a, a unconventional thinker. And so the idea of him making a movie is appealing to me, and that's definitely the first thing I'm going to try to check out. What else is on your list?
1: My most anticipated is also kind of like one of the buzziest of, of Sundance, and it's uh, Passing, directed by Rebecca Hall. Um, I'll just read the cast list, Tessa Thompson, Ruth Nega, Andre Holland, Alexander Skarsgård and Bill camp. And I will read the log line to African-American women who can quote pass as white choose to live on opposite sides of the color line in 1929, New York, in an exploration of racial and gender identity, performance, obsession, and repression based on the novella by Nella Larson. This is like the must see movie at Sundance. Um, and I'm a huge fan of everybody that I just named, including Rebecca Hall.
0: Uh, I'm very excited about passing as well. Another one I'm interested in is Prisoner of the Ghostland, which is uh, a Sion Sono team up with Nicolas Cage. Sono is one of the most fascinating filmmakers in the world. Uh, He's a Japanese filmmaker. He made two movies in 13 and 15 that are wild. One called Why Don't You Play in Hell, and the other called Tokyo Tribe. Um, both of those are worth checking out, and the idea of him collaborating on a wild action movie with. Nicholas Cage, is a must-watch for me. What else?
1: So on the documentary tip, In the Same Breath, um, which is by Nan Fu Wang, who directed One Child Nation, which was another Sundance breakout. Another Sundance breakout. And just, I couldn't recommend it more, although it's extremely devastating. Um, and this is about the pandemic um, uh, firsthand. And I, you know, timely and a, and a great director. So. I will be watching.
0: Uh, Last one for me is just a pair of music documentaries that I've been looking forward to. One is called Summer of Soul or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised. This is Questlove's directorial debut. Longtime admirer of his, also a friend of mine. Joey Patel was a producer on this movie, so I'm looking forward to checking that out. And then the long, 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 long awaited The Sparks Brothers, which is Edgar Wright's documentary about the group Sparks. Obviously, huge fan of Edgar's work, and I like Sparks too, so fired up about this one. I think that's it. So that's a hopefully a good start for people. Six or seven movies to check out. Um, let's do one more question, Bob.
3: Okay. Um, in the interest of giving more recommendations, Nora asks, "What is your ultimate comfort
1: movie?" I mean, Casablanca is up there to to tie it all together. It, I mean, but it, but it really is, Bobby. I'm not just hazing you, though. I am also.
3: Uh, I can accept a little, a little hazing. You know, I came up right when hazing was ending, so it's fine.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. <laughs> this is the limits of acceptable hazing yes Uh, um i also other classic hollywood movies for me i mean singing in the rain is another one that i'll put on just like as a bomb also just you know like joyful in a real way um uh sense and sensibility which is a movie we've talked a lot about on this podcast but i watched that in the last week as a comfort rewatch so um i don't know that's three sean what are yours
0: uh I would say that they're not very comforting. Yeah. Uh True Romance probably the one of the movies I most often turn to when I'm like I don't want to think about anything. Um you know honestly from the years 1996 through 2004 I I watched Clerks a lot. Like a lot. <laughs> uh the Big Lebowski is definitely on that list. Um network um Quite a few. I, I, I do like to rewatch. Last night, it was like one o'clock in the morning. I couldn't fall asleep. And I was, you know, like on my iPad doing some reading. And I was like, you know what? Let's just fire up 12 Monkeys to see how that goes down.
1: That's so weird.
0: Um, that's like. And it was great. I enjoyed it.
1: That's very strange. Speaking of network, All the President's Men is actually one that I put on a lot. And it's not, it's not comforting, but there's something about, you know, they're going to get the job done that is comforting to me. I agree.
0: They're not going to fail. That's a good feeling. Yeah. We didn't fail. We, uh, we did a whole podcast today. Uh, now let's go to my conversation with Matthew Hamachek and Matthew Heinemann. This episode is brought to you by Peppa Pig. Peppa Pig inspires people of all ages to jump through life and its muddy puddles with enthusiasm. The relatable stories, oinks and giggles have made her preschooler's first best friend, helping them navigate everyday life with unabashed exuberance. And now you can discover new playtime adventures with your little ones. Jump into spring and hunt for muddy puddles in Peppa's caravan playset. Hit the road for endless adventures and have heaps of fun with Peppa's whole family. Oinks and giggles are guaranteed. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence since 2004. Peppa Pig is a trademark of Hasbro created by Mark Baker and Neville Astley. This episode is supported by H&R Block. Working moms have way too many to-dos. Switch to H&R Block and have an expert do your taxes for you. Block guarantees 100% accuracy and your max refund or your money back. And with their no-surprise guarantee, you'll always know the price of your tax prep before you begin. You can even meet with a tax pro in a Block office or online from home. So take a breath, moms. This tax season is better with Block. Make an appointment at hrblock.com. All tax situations are different. Not everyone gets a refund. Limitations apply. Description of benefits and details at hrblock.com slash guarantees. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Would I try to squeeze in an extra movie? Maybe try to read a book? The best way to squeeze that special thing in your schedule is to know what's important to you so that you can make it a priority. And therapy can help you figure that out. A therapist can guide you through the process of defining your values and understanding your priorities so you know what things you can spend your time on that will really fulfill you. Otherwise, you'll always be wishing for more time. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn how to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash big picture today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp H E L P. Delighted to be joined by Matthew Hamichek and Matthew Heinemann. Guys, thanks for being on the show today.
4: Thanks for having us.
0: So let's let's start at the timeline. I'm curious. Jeff Benedict and Armin Katan's book on Tiger was released in March of 2018. When do you guys hear about this idea for a film and how do you come together to work on it?
4: I think we we started working on it uh, you know, shortly after we 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 did this with um we we made the film with Jigsaw Productions and they had uh I think they had reached out to Armin and Jeff and talked to them about doing a movie. And uh, shortly after that, I think Matt and I came on a little bit later and sort of used their book as inspiration for the film. And then I think by April or so, we were, you know, starting production on the film, April, 2019. And I think our, um, our first interview was conducted, three days after uh, Tiger had won the 2019 Masters. And so that's when we got started. We filmed for, I guess, uh, you know, almost a year and we're sort of editing and uh, putting the film together at the same time.
0: Did you guys see that victory at the Masters as a as a good thing for the film? Did it help make people want to participate or did it hurt in any way?
2: It, it certainly gave us an interesting uh, ending. Uh, you know, I think... Um, you know, when we started this process, we didn't really we we you know the way we make films is we don't script anything, we don't have any sort of preordained goal or, or hope for for what the story is going to be, um, and it's it's always that process of discovery as 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 you make a film um, and and sort of find your story. For me, I, you know, I've always made you know verité docs, and so this is my first talking head film. You know, Matt's worked on other films like this, but so it was it was interesting sort of going through the process. Of, of discovery for me in this in this new form um but yes there's no question that uh soon after we started this film him winning the masters definitely provided an interesting uh third act i guess uh to the story
0: what were your relationships to tiger were you fans of his you know were are you golf fans you know what drew you to the story
4: i don't think either of us were were necessarily like you know super tiger fans i think i think um you know what fascinated me about tiger was here's you know one of the most recognizable people on the planet and it felt like especially you know after 2009 thanksgiving night we realized that we knew almost nothing about him um despite being so famous and so covered by so many people and i think that uh you know that's one of the things that sort of you know fascinated me and i, I don't want to speak for matt about the story
2: Yeah. I mean, for me, I, I, I'm not a golf fan per se. I I know very little about golf. Um, My dad loves golf and I I joke, I have joked at times that I feel like my dad has loved Tiger Woods more, more than he loves me. Uh, But, uh, but no, personally I I came into this with with very little knowledge of of who he was. Um,
0: Yeah. What were the questions that you wanted to try to answer and then in doing the movie?
2: Who is Tiger Woods? You know, I, I think that that was sort of the organizing principle: is, is trying to create as exhaustive and, and nuanced a portrait of Tiger um, as we possibly could. And um, from his you know early days as a two year old golfer in the garage to um, you know his rise to the most famous people on this planet, um, to his fall and, and to his uh, you know, what some people call it redemption uh, or, or just rise back up again. Um, and so I think uh, trying to find and research and, and, and do the work to, underst- you know, get people on board to help us tell a story because ultimately, you know, we don't narrate the film. We're not, um, we're not the storytellers. The storytellers are, are the, are the subjects that we were able to um, talk to and, and obviously Tiger uh,
0: as well. What's that process like? Trying to compel people to participate in a film like this? What? Do you, how do you make an ask of an interview subject who's someone who has been in Tiger's life for ten or twenty years? What do you say to them to say this is why this would be a good idea for you to do this?
4: I, I think that process was one of the most uh, fascinating parts of making this film. Um, you know, we, we we set out and we sort of said. You know, cover Tiger has sort of been covered by so many people, but sort of at a distance, right? These are journalists who sort of follow him on the golf course and ask him pre- questions at uh, you know press conferences and things like that. So we wanted to find people who knew him intimately and were in the living room with him when he was growing up and kind of had front row seats to his life at sort of pivotal moments. And we started to gather a list of different people like that, that we wanted to reach out to, whether it was his you know kindergarten teacher. um you know, his, his sort of first love, his girlfriend in high school, um, Dina Gravel, um, you know, his his father's biographer and close family friend, Pete McDaniel, all these people. And when we started to reach out to them and, and, you know, tell them we're making this thing, we would love for them to sit, almost across the board, even the people who have sort of had an acrimonious split from him were extremely protective of Tiger and really didn't want to participate in anything that, um, you know, was either going to be sort of the the TMZ version, the salacious version of the of the story, or sort of a puff piece, and they were really hoping to find somebody who was trying to figure out, you know, in a nuanced and complex way who Tiger Woods uh, is and was. And it it took a lot of just sort of trust building. Uh, you know, I, with many of them, it was it was three months of back and forth and talking and. At the beginning of uh, the process, I I sort of drove from Arizona all the way up through California and then to uh, Utah and Colorado, sort of trying to have face-to-face meetings with all these people. And, you know, with Dina uh, Gravel, his first girlfriend... The producer Jenna Milman and I actually had to, you know, drive to her house and sit outside and wait for her to come home. And then, because she just wasn't responding to any uh, emails or uh, texts or phone calls, and uh, eventually, once we were able to talk to her face to face, I think you know, we were at least able to show that we had uh, good intentions and we were going to try to make you know a nuanced, uh, complex portrait of who Tiger Woods was.
0: Was there a reason that you guys could ascertain as to why everyone was so protective? What, what it was that was, cause it feels like there's been almost like a force field around him for the last 20 years.
2: I, I think that's, that's one of the questions that, that definitely we were most surprised by in, in making this is, is how deeply, deeply, deeply prote- protective everyone was. Uh, you know, even if they were screwed over by him, um, that, that, they, you know, everyone had this almost, as you say, sort of maternal and paternal um, protective uh, nature in which they, they wanted to make sure that, as Matt said, we, we weren't going to, um, this wasn't a takedown film, that this was um, going to be an honest and, you know, uh, you know, nuanced portrait of him. And, but that still, you know, years later, um, for some of these people, year, literally maybe a decade later, um there was still so much um almost yeah protectiveness in the way in which they viewed Tiger. wanted to make sure he was okay and that he'd be okay and that him them talking about him would be okay um and i think it's you know i think people have so much empathy for him and and what he's gone through and um i I don't know i think for each person is probably slightly different as to why that is but it definitely was nonetheless a through line through almost
4: everybody. I think one of the things that a lot of people pointed to that grew up with him and sort of uh, were there for, you know, a lot of his life is how much, um, you know, if you go back to, you know, when when Tiger was sort of introduced to the world on national television at the Mike Douglas show, it's where he's, you know, walking out with a little club in a bag and he, he um, hits the ball. Um, I think, you know, Earl, as Tiger was growing up, started to talk about Tiger as this sort of, i almost messianic sort of, you know, uh, figure that you know is one of the people that knew uh, Earl and Tiger. Put it, Earl thought that he was going to um, unite the different races and tribes of humanity, and that's in a lot of ways how Earl talked about Tiger. And so, I think after Earl did that, what was interesting is sort of Nike used that vision that earl had had for his son as a way that they were going to introduce him to the world when tiger turned pro and then after nike did that you know the general public and the media continued to sort of run with that that idea that he was this larger than life character and that meant a lot of different things for a lot of different people right but but we kept building him up and building him up and i think that for the people that were around Tiger and knew him best, they saw how much that weighed on him. And, you know, that came in different forms, one of which was just sort of the insanity that surrounded him everywhere he went. And um, I, I think that, you know, that started uh, from a very young age. And um, I think that's a lot of, I think, you know, everybody has a different reason, but a, like, a lot of them pointed out as a reason for why they were so protective of him. They've seen so many people sort of project these identities and things onto him. And they want to make sure that, you know, if something's being done and they're going to participate, they're not going to just be doing another thing that, that, that does that in a simple form. I,
2: you know, again, we're just, we're slightly projecting here, but I also feel like it's Tiger has this sort of uh, power, you know, this, this, this uh, both in person and and obviously with all these relationships. And I, and I think that people didn't want to, mess with that you know they didn't want to um just on a basic level upset him <laughs> um
0: yeah the, the i feel like the film doesn't really good job of exploring the charisma of greatness versus the charisma of messaging you know that there's obviously a story being told at the beginning that makes you believe something but then also he he lived up to a lot of what his father was projecting onto him you know, Matt Heineman, you pointed out that you've mostly done verite work and you've gone to these war-torn places and these very dangerous spaces. This film is primarily archival and um, you know, obviously talking head as well. Where did you guys how did you unearth all of this archival? Where did all this stuff come from?
4: Well, first off, we have an incredible archival producer, a guy named Matt Fisher, who um who's done a lot of, uh, you know, 30 for 30s and other sports documentaries. But when I reached out to folks and I said, who's the guy that we need to get to be able to dig deep and find these sort of um, little pieces of archival that are tucked away at some local news station in, you know, Topeka or something like that, like, it, it, he was the guy. And so we brought him in. I think that um, the two, at least in my mind, the two most important, you know, pieces of archive in the film are the the... The thing we open with, which is the '96 Haskins Award Bank, where Earl talks about this vision that he has for his son. I think it, it was really important to make sure that, you know, as much as possible throughout this, because obviously we 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 couldn't, you know, talk to Earl that he had a voice and could just, you know, be saying these the, the, explaining his vision for Tiger himself. I think that's one thing. But then, um. The the home video that Dina Gravel, his first girlfriend, uh gave to us of a tiger sort of dancing in the living room and doing the air saxophone, I thought was um was just incredible because, you know, the tiger that we see on TV is the you know, the cold-blooded assassin tiger, right? And uh, you know, he's he's not often you know, joking around, but this was him, you know, before all of that, when he was dancing in his living room and you know a different person. I still remember sort of sitting in in the edit room when we first got that and saying nobody's seen this this version of Tiger Woods before. And then you know beyond that, it was thousands of hours of interviews that he's done and uh, news pieces that have sort of uh, you know been put together over the years. I mean, he is he has had one of the most documented lives uh, out there. And and uh, you know the, the greatest challenge was just sort of getting through it all.
0: And Matt, other Matt, did it change how you thought about what it means to put a film together because you were not present for the capturing of so much of the story that you were telling? Um,
2: yeah, I mean, it was a totally different experience for me. Um, and I think, you know, one of the reasons I love making films is the process of discovery. And, and so, and not, you know, going through story with any sort of script or a preordained notion of what that story is. And so, you know, I think Matt and I still approach this film with that um, mentality. And, you know, Matt certainly said this, you know, a thousand times, <laughs> you know, if someone told me when I was 21 years old, if you end up with the story you started with, then you weren't listening along the way, which I think is good advice for, for life. And I think it's good advice for filmmaking is, is you know, don't be dogmatic, but let the story evolve, let the story change. And I think, um you know, there's many, many things that we learned in the process of making this film that surprised us, that challenged us, challenged our notion of who Tiger was, that challenged our notion of of who we all were, because I think I think this is not just a story of Tiger, this is a story of, of pop culture, this is a story of journalism, this is a story of many things, and the creating of this mythos around this man um, and why and how and, and and sort of all these expectations that that we all put on him and that we all um were invested in and so but going back to your question on a basic filmmaking level it was really interesting and and I, honestly i was i was probably more scared in making this film uh you know a talking head film than i in some ways am going to hang out with cartels in mexico because i, I just i wasn't sure whether we could make it as intimate and as personal as the films that I'd made in the past, and and so that also was one of the sort of guiding principles, at least for me, was was you know how can we how can we make it feel like we're in those rooms, like we are, um, you know, during his transgressive speeches, like we felt the energy and the the silence in that room, like uh, as as Matt talked about, you know, feeling like what it was like to see the high school tiger and 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 have him. Um, playing the saxophone and, and laughing and having fun, seeing, uh, you know, the tiger after his father dies, hugging um, Stevie Williams and crying on his shoulder um, in the hole that Tiger left in him, excuse me, the hole that Earl's death left in him. So, you know, that that was what we really tried to do with this film was make you feel like you are there um, during these moments.
0: Did you guys begin with the assumption that Tiger would not participate or was there ever a time when you thought, Maybe we could get him to sit for this and, and talk to us about his life and experience we uh,
4: we we reached out to him twice actually uh, to his, to his people uh, once at the very beginning and then once uh, when we were a uh, bit away through the edit and uh, each time that we reached out they let us know that he wasn't going to be able to participate because of a prior you know uh, media contract that he had and um, you know that the the way that we sort of you know, once we knew that, I think with all these thousands of hours of interviews that he's done, I think one of the challenges we had was get was basically making sure the tiger had a voice in the film, even though he wasn't going to be able to participate. And the way that we accomplished that was combing through all of those interviews and and making sure that at pivotal moments, whether you it was the 97 Masters or something else, uh, that we were able to sort of get inside of his head as much as possible. Um, and one of the things I just wanted to add on to what you know, Matt just talked about is we had this sort of expression where we wanted to make sure that, uh, the scenes we were creating almost played like verite moments, um, and, and through the archive. And so, you know, what happened was there would be times when we would get a piece of archive that would be raw and it wouldn't have been cut up by a news organization, you know, before. And, um, and when we got those sort of raw pieces of archive, we were able to sort of create scenes out of them and make it feel like you were actually in a moment. And that you know there's this there's just incredible footage of Tiger in his in his home pulling up with Earl. and just those moments that i think I think some of the most powerful moments in the footage uh, were you know the things that you wouldn't normally see in a news package where Tiger's sort of looking off into space, not where he's just, you know, slamming a golf ball over and over again, but where, you know, he, he's, he looks more like a, a typical teenager and he's, um, and it's sort of those in-betweens that can make some sort of some of the best moments.
0: In a lot of sports journalism, there's a lot of um, black and white reporting where it's very clear that com- questions and conversations about the game or the performance are inbounds and personal life or or even philosophical ideas are slightly more out of bounds. Did you find that people when you were sitting down with them were trying to set boundaries for what you could and could not talk about with them? Or did you just say, if you're gonna sit, we can ask you about anything?
2: I, I, I can't think of, I mean even if people had said, you know, you know, we're not gonna go to, into certain topics, you know, it's our job to still try to go into those <laughs> topics and 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 to try to um you know as filmmakers and as journalists to, to you know unearth as much as we can um i you know i think one one example that that again was t- talking about discovery is the interview with joe groman uh the sort of manager of the navy golf course where, where uh tiger learned uh, how to play you know and he was a friend of tiger He was a friend of earl's he's a friend of the family and 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 his deep deep regret and shame in exposing tiger to his infidelities and and also obviously earl's infidelities and in the role that 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 played in in in, in joe's mind of having it sort of an outsized impact on this young impressionable tiger um you know that that was a one of many moments in in, in this process of of sort of discovery in the edit room excuse me in the um in the interview chair, that that was that was quite profound for us.
0: It seems like a lot of folks who are featured in the film that their lives, in a lot of ways, are defined by Tiger. Even if he only represented a very small piece of their experience, um, I don't, maybe that's just good filmmaking that you guys make us seem like these they're just these are just supporting players in this one man's life. But it does seem like there's so much emotion bound up in a lot of their testimony. Did it seem like they were waiting to kind of get something off of their chest? to explore and explain who they
4: are through this guy's light. I, I think that if you talk to these people, they, they will sort of, you know, at first they were very protective of tiger and, you know, didn't want to be part of this chorus of people that have over the course of tiger's life sort of projected all of these things onto him. And then once they got in the chair, you realize that a, a, a a bit of the hesitancy maybe uh, a good deal of it is is also how much of an impact he had on their lives and how much you know i think joe if you talk to him i think he said this at one point about how how he feels like he was there at the at the at the right time to sort of help tiger along the way and, and it is interesting cuz i think earl talked about that a lot as well earl would sort of say I mean, Earl was much more grandiose about it. He would, he would say that, you know, God put him on this earth to nurture and bring tiger to the world. Uh, but I, I don't think that that quality is, is, you know, uh, limited to Earl. I think a lot of people felt like they, um, were there at the right time for tiger. And, um, yeah, they definitely, it's, it's, I, I think, you know, Matt sort of alluded to this earlier, but. Keep, their relationship with Tiger weighs so heavily on them, and when you sort of, you know, peel away at that and you start to expose that, it 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 definitely had a huge impact on all of them.
0: We've seen now with OJ Made in America and The Last Dance these kind of sprawling, complex psychological profiles really of these historic ath- athletes. I feel like this film is kind of in league with those movies in some ways. It's also it is not just a traditional two-hour documentary it's really expansive like at what point did it become clear that this needed to be a four-hour film essentially
2: i think you know matt and i approached this like we'd approach anything we just a one big film whether we you know how it's gonna be broken up how long it was gonna be exactly how long it was gonna be we had no idea um you know we just wanted to tell the story in in, in the way that we wanted to tell it and, and, you know, HBO was, was, you know, really great in allowing us to tell you, you know, give us the freedom to do so. Um, and so, um, you know, I don't, I don't think we had any, um, you know, this is going to be part of part one and this can going to be part of part two and we're going to separate it. this. You know, the whole film, film was constructed as one large story um, that was then broken up into two parts.
0: You do have this incredible kind of bridge with the rachel you could tell moment at the end of part one where you just you can't help but want to see part two if you get to that point in part one you're just like god damn it what is what is coming for us i mean did you find that you guys had to you know create a son like a sense of a cliffhanger to bridge the two parts
4: i don't think we ever felt like we had to create a cliffhanger i think this the story hopefully would sort of sell itself but um as a quick a quick aside um that moment is um i something matt matt will laugh when i tell this because he knows that i've been trying to trying i have uh, been wanting to use that song which is called evidently chicken town for a long time and that moment is kind of an homage to uh, the an episode of uh the sopranos during the final season um in a sort of a similar way it's where it's where uh it's where i think christopher's kid is getting baptized or something like that and there's sort of this seemingly happy moment that has a sense of sort of impending doom and um when i started to listen to pete mcdaniel talk about how you know um tiger finally let out all these emotions after earl had passed away um but you know he said it wasn't over and there was this reckoning that was gonna was gonna be coming uh and we can't escape it and I, i as soon as i heard him say that i was like oh. I started to think about that moment from uh, the show, and then that song, and it just it, it worked out perfectly. But um, uh, you know, I think uh, I think a lot of the process of this is, is sort of as Matt's talked about. It's like it, it's not that you're coming in and saying I'm going to do this, and you know that kind of thing. It's more that you hear the people that knew Tiger best, and they start talking about things in a certain way, and that triggers something, and you think, well, you know, we should follow the lead of the people that were there and and knew that story and knew them intimately.
2: And We definitely knew that we did not want to make a film just for Tiger fans. And we did not want to make a film, you know, feeling like we had the obligation to do the sort of like cradle to grave. You need to know, this is, you know, the encyclopedic entry of Tiger Woods. We just wanted to tell a story that felt deeply personal and nuanced and and hopefully, you know, First, for a man who's been well covered in, in journalism and, and uh, you know, hopefully this is a new entry point uh, to understand, understand him.
0: Was there any particular strain of the story or, you know, sort of, you know, but just part of his history that was hard to structure, that was hard to get people to discuss in a meaningful way to build the story around?
4: I I I don't know about Matt. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think the the sort of the chapter in his life after um, after the two thousand and seventeen DUI, when you know he's coming back, I, I think it's interesting when you hear the way that people in media have have talked about that. They really they really use um, they they talk about it as 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 a redemption story. Um, And it's, it's an interesting sort of part of this cycle of tigers, people projecting things onto tiger, right? I I don't quite know that tiger has anything to redeem in the public's mind to begin with. And, um, and if he did, which I don't, I don't necessarily think he does. I, I don't know what winning a golf tournament has to do with that really. Um, and so, you know, again, it was sort of pushing past that narrative that was sort of instantaneously thrust on the moment. Right. And, and, um, trying to talk to people that, you know, really knew him and have been, you know, close to him over the years and what they start to point to, which I thought was fascinating is they really wanted to see Tiger recapture the joy that he had in the game from, you know, a long time ago, almost like, you know, you talked to Dino Gravel and obviously his, his high school girlfriend. And she, you know, obviously points back to the thing that, you know, she cared about. And that was, you know, getting back to that old tiger that was dancing in her living room and sort of the more carefree days. And I think that that's the thing they all pointed to as they saw tiger, you know, mounting this sort of golf comeback is that they saw him having the joy again, and that that was the most significant part about it to me or to them rather.
0: Had your opinions changed of Tiger at all after you completed work on the film? I know you guys don't consider yourself fans necessarily, but I'm sure you had a, a consciousness about him.
2: Matt, <laughs> you want to much short?
4: It's okay. I, 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 it's was okay. Up, I was
2: pulling up a, a message that Matt sent to me after the 20s. Uh, yeah, after
4: this the is good. Year. You should tell. Yeah, tell tell the story. This is good. You should you should do this.
2: Sorry, I wasn't like tweeting my friends. <laughs> I was I was uh, I was I was trying to look up this this message because I you know, it was hard. Ironically, for someone who makes films in real time all the time, the, the real time aspect of Tiger Story was the most difficult for, for us because it's like, you know, so much of it was was well sort of placed and well understood and 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 you know we could sort of attack it and 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 dig into it in a way. But but sort of how to contextualize the present moment was quite difficult. And um, Matt sent me this, this tweet uh, by a journalist in Darren Sands right after the Tiger won the Masters. And it, it reads, you know, Tiger's a lot like America. He's awful. He's awesome. He's got addictions. He's thrilled us, embarrassed us. He's lied. He's cheated. He's the best ever. And he's all of ours, whether we like it or not. There's little faith he could be fixed, but there is faith and it worked. And, you know, that I don't agree with every, ask, every period and comma of what he wrote. But you know, I think that that it excited me sort of at, at the very sort of nascent stages of of, of exploring Tiger to, to know that there's you know, there's a lot that we could dig into into the story and it and extended you know far beyond you know the the bright green golf courses of which he walked, and that and that as a filmmaker as a storyteller really excited me. You know that we could explore many other themes about America about our, you know fatherhood about journalism. And, and, and ultimately, you know, that's hopefully, you know, we're telling a much greater story than just Tiger
0: Woods. Matt have a check what about for you? Anything that you took away from this from Tiger that you didn't expect or that changed your mind somehow?
4: I think that, you know, I think I, I, I had consumed his sort of, you know, post 2009, life the way that everybody else had, it was, you know, in these, whether it was, uh, you know, on TV, or you know, catching a tabloid as I was in the supermarket, or something like that. And it had been this very simplistic narrative, right? It was um, uh, this guy who had done all these things that you know um, cut against the narrative that we had known for a really long time. I, and I think there was a, a lot of pe- there were a lot of people out there that were sort of, sort of wagging their finger at him and shaming him and saying, "How dare you not live up to our basically this image that we all created of him." And so, you know, you, when you when you hear from the people that knew him so well and you hear how tortured he was in terms of like, you know, his his uh, really close friend, Amber Loria, describing how he would go scuba diving at the bottom of the ocean. So he could go to a place where, you know, he, as Tiger said, the fishies don't know my name down there. Uh, I, I think that, you know, I had a great deal of sort of empathy for him, uh, as this person who from such a young age has just had all this thrust on him. And I can't imagine how you would deal with, deal with that. And I, and I think in the same way, interestingly, you know, for my, for me is I think a lot of people, when they start to hear about Earl and sort of forcing him to not do other, you know, according to his kindergarten teacher, not doing other sports and, and all this other stuff, they, they similarly sort of want to say, Oh, you know, Earl was this, Domineering, awful parent, and all the stuff. And I think you know, I have two two young boys, you know, uh, under the age of five. And um, I think to myself, well, what would I do if one of them hopped up from their high, high chair when they were ten months old and, you know, hit a golf ball like that? You know what I mean? It's like I, I have no interest in teaching my kids anything about golf. It's 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 not going to happen. But I I just put myself in Earl's shoes and thought, well, you know, is what he did so. So you know, so that instinct is that so wrong, I, you know, I, I, so I think, I think that uh, the who Tiger Woods is and who all the people are in his sort of orbit. I think everybody just became more complicated, and uh, you know, I would just go back and forth, and you know, how I viewed Earl, and I hope you know, the goal and when you make these things is you know that you leave the audience at you know, sort of you you raise more questions than then you sort of answer. Right. And I hope, I think, you know, Matt and I both like to do that when we're making films and I hope that we were able to here. and I hope this is a complex portrait and not, you know, uh, a sort of simple, you know, this is good, this is bad kind of thing. Um, because I think that's a lot of what has been made about tiger, uh, thus far.
0: Yeah. I think you guys definitely did that. It's, it's really nuanced and sophisticated as far as these kinds of things go. So congrats on that. Um, we end every episode of this show by asking filmmakers what's the last great thing they've seen. Have you have you guys seen anything good in what I presume is quarantine for you both?
2: I uh, I've been working more than I've ever worked uh, on a couple different films over the past. I, I honestly have not watched a movie in months. Uh, so wow. I I've I, I've worked every single day for the past I don't know probably nine months. So I. Honestly, cannot not
0: even a television show, not even a YouTube video.
2: I've when I to relax at night, I watch surfing videos. Because Surfing is my <laughs> my
0: scuba dive for, as, as scuba diving was for Tiger Woods. Surfing is to me. So do you I, have Do you have a particular brand of surfing video that you like that you would recommend to people? Uh
2: really anything. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's my uh, my cigarette break at the end of the night. So.
4: Do the fishies not know who you are when you when you when you crash uh, when you when when you're surfing?
2: Exactly. I, that. So going back to your last question, though, that is the one thing I know for the only thing I know for certain after making the show is that I'm more than happy being
0: behind the camera,
2: and I will remain behind the camera for the rest of my life. Um, sorry, I didn't answer your question. <laughs> no,
0: nope, that's surf. That's a first surfing videos. Matt Hamachek, <laughs> what about you?
4: I um I I've been wrapping this up and and haven't had a ton of time to watch uh i think what are we just we just started watching queen's gambit because enough people had said you have to see it yeah i I, and I watched like half an episode or something like that so far but it looks great uh the the last good thing weren't you just on the you were just on the ringer talking about how tortured uh, uh you are as a jets fan i think right I'm i think that was a, the last tortured, that, was, yes. that was the yes that was the last uh are you a jets fan that was the, uh no Knicks and mets and then my family's from green bay wisconsin so as you can imagine uh i i don't have a choice uh sweet rejoicing
0: though you get aaron Rodgers. i'm stuck with nothing man
4: i got i basically i basically started following the packers when right when Favre uh became quarterback and i've had a very blessed uh blessed fan life but are you have are, are you relieved now that Gase is gone
0: yeah i'm relieved but i i don't i don't know what the future holds you know you'll have you'll have playoff games to watch and Heinemann will have surfing videos to watch and I'll be stuck with shit in my hand unfortunately <laughs> <laughs> I do have, just for the record I do watch movies and I love movies <laughs> uh, I just have, I have not had the opportunity for, yet. for definitely the first filmmaker I've talked to who said I haven't seen a movie in months that is, that is a rare one um, guys thanks so much for doing the show I really appreciate it and congrats on Tiger thanks for having us thank you Matthew Hamachek and Matthew Heineman. Thanks to Amanda and to Bobby Wagner. Tune in later this week when Amanda and I will talk about WandaVision, the new MCU series, I think, and maybe some pandemic movies and a whole lot else. See you then.
4: This episode is brought to you by Lululemon. Guys, if you're ready for a new pair of pants, try one of Lululemon's ABC pants.